Welcome. You've joined the Sexy Lifestyle with Carol and David. Our show is here to help you achieve better, better love, better sex, and a better, more intimate relationship. Are you ready? Take notes and send us your questions. This is the Sexy Lifestyle. Now, here are your hosts, Carol and David. Hey, everyone. Are you ready to spice up your sex life and live happy, healthy, and always horny? Well, you've come to the right place because that's what the sexy lifestyle is all about. And you know, David and I are passionate about making your sex life the best it can be. We sure are. And you know, we love talking and learning about everything related to sex and sexuality, sexual health, and of course, sexual pleasure. We love diving deep into the naughty, the taboo, and the unknown. And we hope our discussions open up your dialogue about great sex because, well, great sex matters and we all deserve it. We sure do. So... Have you ever considered what it would be like to have sex in space with zero gravity, confined quarters, lack of resistance, and that messy cleanup? Could it actually be as pleasurable as I and we all fantasize it might be? Well, on today's show, we're going to discuss all aspects of how we can integrate sex research into the space programs. We get deep into human sexuality, sex tech, aerobotics, which is the study of human-machine erotic interactions and co-evolution. It's going to be a good one. It is. This is, <laughs> this is, you know, one of my fantasies is having sex in space, and I never knew who to go to. So today's show is going to be probably one of my favorites. We have a world-renowned researcher coming on. But before we bring him on, we want to, like we do at the beginning of every show, tell you about our top waterproof blanket because great sex is messy sex and nobody wants to sleep in that wet spot. So if you're fed up with having to change your sheets every time you have sex, then you need one of our top waterproof blankets. It's 100% waterproof and leak-proof and it guarantees to keep your bed and mattress dry no matter how wet it gets. From messy massage oils or silicone lubes to all sorts of sexy wetness. Just throw it in the washer and dryer and it comes out looking like brand new. And you don't have to leave your house to get one. Simply and safely go to Amazon and order yours today. Search top waterproof blanket. That's T-O-P, waterproof blanket. Great sex starts now. It sure does. And so does today's show. You know we're Carol and David. This is The Sexy Lifestyle. And I am super excited to welcome today's special guest because I've been wanting to have him on our show for years and for finally so we hooked up. Long. Oh my God, oh my God, sex and space. Like, I don't know if I do it with you, babe, because you're not, you're not into going into <laughs> no, space, no. but I'm like, I'll be there tomorrow. Okay, so everybody, we've got space sexology expert, Simon Dubé. He's a co-chair of the International Congress on Love and Sex with Robots. And David is so excited to be talking to you today, Simo. <laughs> Welcome. A pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. <laughs> yeah, and he's not kidding. He's been talking about sex and space ever since I met him. So yeah, it's definitely going to be a fun co topic today. So I guess we should get started by finding out how you became interested in human sexuality. Let's give us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, so um, a couple of years ago when I was an undergrad, I was, I was really searching uh, for what to do for my graduate studies and my doctoral dissertation. I was looking into social neuroscience, cognition, and basically how the brain and mind works. And I discovered this lab in Montreal that was researching all of these aspects, but in connection with human sexuality. And I got to tell you, it was it was love at first sight. Really, uh, I started I started reading all their work on conditioned partner preferences. I approached the lab they were happy to welcome me. So I started my graduate studies with them really here. Study, studying um, the development of sexual preferences actually in BDSM practitioners. 
And uh, what started as a, a side project about the impact of technology on human sexuality quickly uh, blew out of proportion and became uh, my full thesis on aerobotics. And five years later, also some work on space sexology that we'll talk about today. And so what exactly is aerobotics? That's a cool name, and I, I even have trouble saying it every time. <laughs> yeah, aerobotics is, um, is a scientific field of research that comprehensively studies uh, human-machine erotic interaction and coevolution. Um, to be a bit more specific, uh, as a field, aerobotics really aims to develop theoretical, experimental, and clinical research method to study the broad spectrum of dynamics that relate to the emergence of erotic technologies. Uh, it also aims to explore the ethical and social implications of uh, the emergence of new technologies and their implication in our sexuality, as well as guide, that's really important, guide the development of beneficial erotic machines. So machines that could mitigate harm, but also improve and enhance human well-being. So when you say machines, you mean like sex dolls and sex robots that is considered a machine? Yes, but we're also here including all kinds of system. We are talking about all kinds of virtual, embodied, and augmented artificial erotic partners. So we can think about erotic chatbots, uh, virtual partners. We can think about the classic sex robots, but also all their intersections and the systems that enable them. So. For example, if you are in a virtual environment and you're interacting with virtual partners, you might have this impression that you're talking to a partner that is in front of you, but actually you're interacting with the whole system that is surrounding you, as well as the other actors that may be within that system. So aerobotics is really, uh, yes, the study of our interaction with technology that could be as simple as sex toys or dolls, but also can explore our complex evolution with partners that are also able to achieve maybe one day human level or surpass human level of relationship and intelligence. Wow, very, very cool. Wait. And then how did this lead into the space sexology? So um, a couple of years ago when we were working on foundations of aerobotics are really monster of a paper, 317 references with uh, Dr. Dave Anctil. Um, that paper really merged sexology with human machine in, uh, erotic with, with the study of human machine interaction, and we were we were looking into uh, some of the applications of these aerobotic technology. And one one kind of application that really became clear is um, to use this technology to allow access to human intimacy to people who may not always have access to partners and companionship and sexual uh, stimulation. Um, with everything that was happening in the space sector, the link became very clear that the conditions of space exploration might be a good place to apply some of these aerobotic technologies. So we wrote, uh, we wrote an opinion piece in the conversation uh, called Sex in Space. Could technology meet the needs of astronauts? And um, it really took off. <laughs> it's been it uh, more than 130,000 times, I think. Um, a couple of months after that, the company WeVibe, the, the sex toy company, uh, they contacted us and kind of asked, "Would you, would you willing to, to expand on the on this topic of using technology in space?" And we were doing some research on on the back end for that, so we said, "Obviously, yes." We we wrote a full uh, report on the possibilities the possibilities of using modern sex tech in space. Um, the first part of that uh, 
of that report is out. But when we did that, when we started really delving into these issues, we realized that there was virtually nothing uh, or very limited research on human sexuality and intimacy in space, especially when it comes to human and their complexity. So we realized, look, we have to we have to take a step back. We are already providing some solutions like using sex tech and whatnot, but we're not even studying uh, comprehensively human sexuality in space. So we took that step back and wrote the case for space sexology, which was published uh, in 2021 in the Journal of Sex Research. Uh, and that paper really is a call for action. It, it reviews the existing literature, but I think most importantly, say to space organizations, whether they be national or private companies, we need to be addressing these issues. And we're also proposing uh, a framework to guide this research. Cool. So I guess I'm not the only one out there, but officially, has anybody had sex in space? Officially, no. Then there's a lot of rumors. There's a lot of people who say, who speculate, and there's anecdotes of people who might be masturbating or having partnered sex. But I like to stick with the narrative that is official. So as long as there is no official comments and, and reports and data related to that, the official statement is no. So that so, said, so Simon, it, so it, Simon, how do I go about being the first person <laughs> to have sex in space? Who do I need to talk to? <clears throat> Well, first of all, you talk to me, and then, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and so so that's that's check. Uh, but no, the first thing that we would need to do is obviously convince, and that's what we're trying to do with the papers and research and really the science behind it. The first step is to convince space organization that this is an issue that should, they should be addressing and should be investing necessary resources. Then it's a long road. We need to gain a lot of data and basic science uh, done before we can make this happen but uh i mean if uh if one company is really keen on investing the resources it could be uh, pretty quick but for you specifically i don't know you'll have to be screened and there's a lot uh, there, there might be a long, a long journey i think there's process. a very very long list <laughs> very uh, other than that it's possible that if you have enough money <laughs> everything is everything is possible apparently. yeah so, so what what let, let, let's say the space organizations said okay we want to go forward and um, see what happens where two people actually have sex in space. What needs to be done to to move that forward? Yeah, really good question. Like I said, the first step is to convince these organizations that they need to be investing their time and resources. The second step is, uh, I would say in terms of uh, experiment and basic data that we need to establish, is to comb through the huge archives that these organizations have in terms of data about human life in space. Um, catalog all of this and make sure to cross their uh, their data with everything that we already know about modern sexology. Then I think the next step is to interview astronauts and astronaut candidates about their experience in analog contacts, in, um, in space missions before, during, and after. Following that, I think we should do experimental studies uh, that explore the impact of human intimacy and sexuality prior, um, during, and after a space missions. And then using all that, strong with all that data and basic knowledge, then we need to devise a plan and training program to screen astronauts, um, train astronauts for everything that we'll have to do with the complexity of human intimacy and sexuality in space context, 
then prepare these astronauts uh, and do some test runs, whether that be in simulation analog context and also these maybe zero gravity planes and, and stuff like that. And after that, after we've gone through this process, which will take years to achieve, and that's assuming that we start right now and people agree that we need to be investing time and resources, which is a big if, then from there we'll be able to select the proper candidates, um, train them, get through this process, and send them into space potentially to have sexual uh, relationship. To be fair, um, already the basic data and stuff like that would be a huge step um, to make this happen. Um, but uh, as my colleague, Dr. Leyendecker says, we have only one shot at this. We need to do it right. We need mm -hmm. to do it ethically and safely. Um, so we need to take each step quite seriously and take time to gather the proper uh, data and develop the proper training and screening process to make sure everything happens uh, safely okay getting back to me again all right <laughs> getting, David wants getting back to, to do me, this and, and I agree with you like I'm only gonna have one shot to get this right what types of things practical things can I do on earth to get myself in shape to have sex in space should I be doing it like in, in a pool you know a lot of astronauts they train in swimming pools to simulate zero gravity give me give me some of the things I need to work on do I have to work on my abs my glutes <laughs> Well, first of all, is the mechanics the same, uh, you know, in space as it would be on Earth? Um, good question. Yes and no. I'll come back to, uh, to your question because <laughs> I, I feel there are some things to be said about that. that you should probably go back in time and uh, become an engineer. Uh, <laughs> okay, all the of the screening things. process of astronauts, uh, probably be in extremely good shape, uh, train yourself to be very good at uh, managing all kinds of situation and pra practicality, and then also become a, a great lover and, uh, and so on. And having these I, I can send you videos and... of me and Carolyn and Orgy. <laughs> I can manage lots of things at the yeah. same time. He's definitely an exhibitionist. He wouldn't mind if the cameras were on him. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> but but then if we talk really about the mechanics, it's it's really a, a yes and no. Okay, the basic equipment is the same, uh, but the conditions in which uh, sexuality would take place in space, uh, especially for now, for instance, with um, the International Space Station and upcoming starships and upcoming uh, upcoming spacecraft. The, will help establish permanent settlements on the moon and Mars. We are talking about widely different uh, habitats and conditions. We're talking vacuum of space, uh, reduced gravity, radiation, uh, isolation, limited number of uh, people, limited privacy, uh, very strict rules of hygiene and protocols. Um, and I mean, let's not forget that uh, as of now, especially uh, space missions, you're, you're with colleagues, okay? The, the International Space Station is, is a huge lab. Okay, it's a working environment. So there's also all of these... Uh, Sexual harassment <laughs> issues. <laughs> yes, yes, we can absolutely come back to that as an absolutely crucial point. Um, but all of that to say that, yeah, the mechanic is the same, um, but there's a lot of distinction between the environment. So a lot of people, uh, what they jump to when they think about the mechanic of sex in space is reduced gravity. So yes, reduced gravity creates a situation where if you push on your partner, there's no resistance. So uh, you move. It's it, we need to find solution to keep uh, partners close together. If people masturbate, especially uh, male bodies, well, yes, if they ejaculate, uh, bubbles and zero gravity. But all the all of that, the, the practical mechanics, I think, is actually quite simple to um, 
to find solutions uh, for, whether that be garments and environments that enable privacy and keeping partners together, whether it be, whether it be great protocols to uh, make sure that everything is hygienic. Uh, the mechanic is really not the biggest challenge. I'd say everything that I've mentioned before about radiation, isolation, limited number, issues of sexual harassments and power dynamics and risks that these dynamics will influence the safety and crew performance and mission success. That, that I think, is really the challenges. The mechanics of space, uh, of whether that be solitary or partnered sexual activity, I think we can uh, figure that out uh, pretty easily, even though the, the media really try like to focus the discourse on that. But it's there's many other challenges well, that I think. That's wait, wait, just wait, like wait. David's fantasy. That's all he can visualize right. so, is the actual mechanics of having sex. He probably right. never thought about no, no, any no, no, of no. those things I, you listed. I, I did, I did, I did, I did. <laughs> so, you know, um, I was listening to Simone talk about, you know, zero gravity. I'm thinking that maybe we need to start getting a little bit kinky and work with some restraints because if, you know, we're going to go have sex in space, maybe I just get tied down or you tie or I tie you down and then one of us is tied to a particular place and the other one grabs on and you get that that's similar resistance to oh, on Earth. Does that I make see. sense, Simo? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think we need to be creative. I, again, I think it's not the, the biggest challenge. I think we can be creative that way and find very practical solutions to make sure that sex, partnered sex, including, um, is safe, is possible, and is hygienic. And um, there's no short of, uh, shortage of imagination. <laughs> right. wait, wait, I, just came, sexuality. I, I just came so, up with one. Imagine if there was um, uh, some sort of um, restraint device on the ceiling and you're up on the ceiling and we're having sex on the ceiling. You know, Lionel Richie was dancing on the ceiling. Well, this way, like you're on the ceiling and I'm doing you from below. Yeah, but I don't think there's a ceiling at top or bottom when there's resist when there's less gravity. No, no, I but, think but it's all the you'd same. Be, you'd be like in a seatbelt or something. Oh gosh, you're funny. No, <laughs> oh my my, you see how my brain works? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> I got to live with this brain. <laughs> I, I think there's absolutely good reasons to think that we can devise uh, garments or uh, or little environments and cocoons that could make uh, people able to have solitary or partnered sexual activity. Some have already been proposed. Uh, we can think about. Uh, Vanabantas two suits, but I think there's also many other ways to make uh, this happen and make it pleasurable and fun and even offer new opportunities that we don't necessarily have on Earth. And I think uh, that's absolutely an avenue that we need to, to be exploring. But I can tell you, we're really far from that. We're really far from that sex, positive mindset, openness uh, I, I, from space agencies. I'm not saying this will happen in the future. But I bet on more like on the sides of maybe private companies who will develop space hotels or space tourism that some people will find a way to uh, build and pay to be some of the first person to have sexual activities and beautiful sexual activities in space. Uh, but at, if that happens, uh, I'd like for us to be prepared and have the basic knowledge to at least make sure that it's done safely. Yeah. So, Simon, knowing what you know, being in the industry... If I had a person to contact, would it be Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, or Richard Branson? Who do you think is going to be the most open? I think to Richard me Branson. Them? Yeah, Richard Branson feels like he's Let, more open. But let's talk to the expert here and let's okay. hear his opinion. Because I agree with you, it should be Richard Branson. If it was uh, my choice and my bet and my strategy uh, 
to make this possible, I would contact the three of them at the same time and make it a bidding war. Do you have, uh, do, do you have their phone a... number? <laughs> <laughs> no, I wish. But uh, if if if, the, if they're listening right now, um, I think they should contact us. We have a team of amazing uh, researchers and experts that can make sure that their dreams of space settlements and colonization of other planets and worlds is done safely and for um, the well-being of maybe we need space to put, civilization we need to put ourselves onto a, one of richard branson's new cruises right oh really right. you think so right because and that's not sex in space it doesn't matter but we might be able to meet him there and, and ask him point blank can we go on your spaceship to be the first people to have sex in space sure point blank he's gonna say yeah no that's not you don't ask you don't get right <laughs> other than um billionaires um creator and leader and CEO of the space industries, I would also uh, like to give a shout out to uh, my colleague, Dr. Egbert Delbrock, who's, who's the CEO of Spaceborne United, a company whose goal is actually to develop the technologies and systems that will enable reproduction in space. Wow. Uh, so if I have a bet, also, yes, it might be uh, these big tech companies and big tech uh, people. But there's also, outside of these giants, uh, some companies and startups that are trying to make uh, human reproduction possible in sexual activities in space. So uh, maybe it's worth uh, giving uh, Dr. Ilmog sure. a call. Absolutely. Sure. You know, um, I, I think we need to err on the side of non-reproductive uh, research up there. We have six kids. We don't want any more. <laughs> we'll let the younger generation work on the reproductive side. We'll just do the pleasure side. Yeah, yeah, sure. absolutely. And I mean, right now, even though it's limited research, most of it is on reproduction. But we need to remind space agency that sexuality is not just about reproduction. And reproduction itself is not just about producing viable offspring. There is a lot of social, psychological and cultural components that need to be uh, in, taken into consideration. And yes, sexuality and intimacy is fun and pleasurable and uh, good for our well-being. So there's a lot of other components than just yeah, let's find a way to uh, make babies in space. Uh, it's, it's one important part of the right, problem, but right. there's much more than that. Yeah, and I think we're going to get into a little bit about that later on in, in our show. But right now, we're just going to take a quick break. So just let's remind everybody that this is A Sexy Lifestyle. We are Carol and David, and we're chatting with a space sexology expert, Simon Dubay. Now let's just talk about topless travel and the amazing trip that we have planned for later this year. Absolutely. Topless travel is the best. So if you're looking for the sexiest and most erotic vacation ever, then you simply have to book with Topless Travel from Hedonism 2 in Jamaica, Desire in Cancun, to all the Bliss Cruise experiences. Topless Travel needs to be your number one choice. They are ours. Their trips and events are all about the people and the sexy fun experiences. Yeah, of course. So let's shout out to uh, some of the sexy host couples, including Chelsea and Mark, and even Colby, who was with us in Hedonism uh, just last month. And uh, they're there to make sure that you have one hell of a sexy vacation. Yeah, and you're going to find us on many of the topless travel trips. Like Carol just said, we were with them at Hedo. Um, but listen up, the one that we're really looking forward to is their sexy silver full takeover of Desire Pearl, October 16th to 23rd, 2022. We're going to be there broadcasting our show live, and the rooms are selling out quickly, so book now. And come on down, join us for a week. We would love to meet you. And for more information about this trip or any of the topless travel events, you can go to our website, thesexylifestyle.com, and click on the topless travel events link to book the sexiest and most erotic vacation ever. Absolutely. So 
Um, you know, this is The Sexy Lifestyle. We are Carol and David. We're going to get back to this amazing show that we're having all about sex and space with space sexology expert, Simone Zubay. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what we brought up a little bit earlier, which was aerobotics and artificial partners. So, Simone, how established is this field of study? How long has it existed? So, uh, not long. Foundations of Aerobotics, the, the foundational paper, uh, was published on October 28, 2000. Um, but the, the research at the intersection of technology and sexuality, I would say, is more than 40 years old. Uh, which is decent for a field like sexology and human-machine interaction, which is, mm. uh, I'd say, about uh, a century old. And the, stu- the study of human-machine erotic interaction specifically really exploded uh, in um, 27 when Dr. David Levy, my, uh, my co-chair on Love and Sex with Robots, uh, published his book. And it was reinvigorated 10 years later by uh, John Donaher and Neil McCarter when they published their collective Robot Sex, and a year afterwards, uh, when Dr. Kate Devlin published uh, Turn On, I'd say that in the last five years, uh, we've we've really seen a surge in scholarly work and media attention examining our intimate relationship with machines, especially uh, sex robots or love robots, and I I really believe this is this is just going to continue to grow as more advanced technology, including more agential erotic partners and systems, occupies a growing place in our intimacy. And would you consider yourself like a leader in this industry? Uh, Good question. I don't know if I'm a leader in uh, this industry, but my team and I are are definitely trying to push science forward. So sexology tends, uh, as you know, to sometimes be left behind. Uh, So there's big transformation, big dynamics that happens in our societies and cultures. And then sex is kind of an afterthought, even though it's a central aspects of our lives and what we think about every day. So when I when I say big transformation right now, I think, for instance, about the technological revolution or, or space exploration. So uh, my team and I were really trying to change that trend. We're, we're trying to bring sexology to the 21st century and really at the forefront of these big transformation that we're going through. Now, when we imagine living in space, of course, it makes sense that if we have some type of machine or technical uh, system that could help us have intimacy when we're alone and confined. But when sex robots first were introduced, people didn't really understand what a need for them was. Can you explain in general for humankind, what is the need for human-machine interactions for intimacy? Yeah. Um, look, when it comes to sex robots or these intimate machines, I think um, a lot of people think about them from a very sometimes privileged perspective in the sense that, and I sometimes I include myself absolutely in that, but they don't think about all that they can bring. The people who don't necessarily have access to sex and companionship, uh, the people who may not prefer interaction with humans, but would prefer uh, to live their sexuality with artificial partners. Um, all the health conditions that these machines could be used in. Um, we can think also about uh, t- these technology as new tools that we can use in research to uh, to really test some aspects and fundamental aspects of human sexuality. So there there's a very broad array of potential applications that erotic technologies can have in, to improve human life. 
Yeah, for sure. And so what would be like, what would you say as a summary would be the mission or the goals of your team? What, what kind of things are you really studying and want to push forward? My, my ultimate goal is very simple, whether it be for aerobatics and space exology, it's simple and always has been the same. It's to improve human well-being. And now, how we do that is really complex. I think we need to find ways to mitigate the risks of uh, our relationship and sexuality with machines or in space. But we also need to think positively and think, how can we facilitate the full holistic expression of human sexuality with technology and in space context. Yeah, and, and can we actually have relationships with these machines? Is it really possible? I think so. I think, um, again, you have to define for yourself what a relationship is, but humans develop relationships with uh, objects, with uh, other partners and living beings. I think... Uh, we are, we are already seeing some people who develop very complex relationships and dynamics with dolls, for instance. And uh, these individuals, while the relationship is, let's say, unidirectional in the sense that they are the ones projecting and creating the narrative and creating the relationship, when we look at aerobotic technologies and their progression in terms of their agency, in terms of their, their capacity to act in or on our world to achieve goals, we're seeing with new technologies like AI, advancements in robotics and virtual worlds, we're seeing this agency grow drastically. We're seeing the emergence of machines that can learn faster, more efficiently, can change, adapt, react to humans. And as this agency grows, the complexity and possibilities of relationship with humans is also multiplied. And I think what we're going to see in the coming years is that as this agency grows, the kind of relationship and willingness of people to engage in relationship with these machines will grow as well. Now, I think we've been, you know, seeing robots in uh, sci-fi movies and in from from young age uh, in our generation, like from the Jetsons and what the future is going to look like when you have a robotic uh, maid in the house who's cleaning up after you or or feeding you or cooking for you. But um, it was never really thought about of having, well, I guess, sexual relations or intimacy relations with these types of machines. But that's where the future is going. So what is it going to take to make that really happen in the future where you will have a best friend who could be maybe a robot? I think it's I think it's going to take a lot of technological innovations, but also sociocultural changes that will happen as these technology occupy ever-growing place in our intimacy. So let's say on, on the technological side, we'll need advancements in in facial recognition, in speech, re speech recognition, we'll need advancements in the robotic, the hardwares. We'll also, uh, in the virtual side of the virtual world, we'll continue to develop ever more uh, realistic environments that are able to be built uh, and improve the autonomy of the artificial agents that are within these environments for it to become a very interesting and meaningful experience for a large portion of the population. I think the transformation will happen when some people uh, will just try it, then discover that the experience is amazing, then share it with their, uh, their friends and families uh, um, and say, look, you, you got to try this. This is this is mind blowing. This is great. Uh, the partners are amazing. It's a beautiful erotic experience. Whether the sex is great, the intimacy is amazing, uh, 
And from that, there will be an important transition period where, yeah, some people might oppose these relationships, then others will be like, look, you need to be open-minded. I mean, there's a lot of parallel that could be drawn in history with all the movements that have to do with the um, the acceptance of LGBTQ movements. Uh, I think we are seeing people who identify with technology-based sexualities, but we are also going to see a large majority of the population is going to integrate more and more technologies in their intimacy and relationship structures. And as this process will happen, there also there are also going to be a cultural and social shift. So people will will change their acceptance of what it means to love the sex and accept that other people are having relationships with and through technology. So that's why I mean, we need to have the innovation on the technological side, but we all we also need to have the cultural process of evolution. So that's what aerobotics is also trying to study. Now, we know with um, artificial intelligence, AI, and, um, you know, we, 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 we're starting to live with it every day, right? We can um, type ahead and you, the, there's some sort of algorithm in place where it knows how you talk and what words you want to use. And then we have... You know, um, you know certain thermostats that that know the type of temperatures you like in your house. So I'm I'm assuming that with these aerobotics, that these uh, machines are going to be able to learn what their partner likes. Correct? Absolutely. This is exactly what we're uh, we're developing, and s- some some systems are really pretty good at uh, developing patterns and understanding patterns of what you write, how you talk, what your preferences, and cross that with also banks of your other data and your activities on online, on your cell phone and whatnot. And from that, develop its own relationship with you. Propose things, propose activities, propose ideas, then you react to that. The more you interact with the machine and system, the more it learns from you, the more you can integrate that content to the, into the discussions and relationships. That's what we are already seeing. But in the future, we're also seeing technologies that are also able to learn how to learn. So that's a very uh, kind of meta way of thinking about it is where not only is the system able to learn and adapt to your relationship, it's also able to learn the best way to learn how to adapt in relationship. And that's where the possibilities is also incredible. Very cool. So, you know, my next question is, um, you know, Carol and I live in a world of sexuality. We see um, bisexual, LGBTQ, um, and we see a lot of sexual fluidity where, you know, there's no labels in in the real world. It's people can be who they want to be in this moment and be someone in the next moment. Um, do you see that uh, these, these um, aerobotics and these um, machines that are out there are going to have the ability for their partner to say, you know, today I feel like um, a, a person with, um, um, well, like one way or another, right? Yeah, I, I'm I'm a him today, or I'm a her tomorrow, and and could that um, uh, robot adapt to meet that person's needs or mood of that moment of that sexual fluid moment? Absolutely, I think robotic technologies are one of the keys to exploring the incredible depth and diversity of human eroticism, our identities, our preferences, our lifestyles. I think um, the forms, the behaviors, uh, the numbers, the, the kind of interaction and structures, all of that is 
highly malleable and versatile in their robotic technologies. And here, we're not just talking about sex robots. Okay, you can change the face, you can change the parts, you might change the interaction. Imagine the, the versatility and of virtual partners and how these technology can integrate with one another. For example, if you're in a virtual world, you can interact with multiple partners that are humans, that have certain features and possibilities, and they can be multiple partners, they can be humans, they can be machines, and all of that knowledge and technology and data that they're gathering can also be transposed into robots and they can talk to each other and be connected to one another. So you can have your sexuality multiplied by the possibilities of having relationship with these very adaptable partners on Earth in your real world interaction in these robots, but also continue those interaction in a new form and new environment in virtual world. This this really blurs the line and it, it it really will, I think, enable us to really gain a sense of the imagination and depth of human eroticism when we can when these technology can help us materialize it. Mm -hmm. Now, we talk a whole lot about great sex matters and that we we promote great sex. And that's one of the things that we talk about a lot, just to even open up dialogue so people can improve their sex lives. But what we, we never talk about is those people who don't have a sex life that perhaps they're isolated or perhaps they live on the moon eventually. Have there been like... Uh, studies done to what happens to the sex lives and the people of those, you know, isolated areas? Do you know anything about that? Um, if it's in the context of really space exology and space context, we we already have some idea that analog context and space environments are stressful in their isolation. We need to prepare astronauts for that. When they're that, we need to deploy all kinds of strategy to keep them occupied, but also having fun. Uh, working, resting. We need to really think about how to make sure that uh, this reduced psychosocial stress is dealt with. And also after that, after the mission, when they come back on Earth after a long period of time, how they readjust to the social environments. Now, in sexology, we also have all kinds of data and studies related to isolated environments, environments where there's not a lot of partner partners. We also have anecdotal data that suggests that people who are not able to find partners, whether incels, but also people from the LGBTQ community, obviously two, two separate things, but I'm in the LGBTQ communities, people, we often hear these stories of, I used to live in a small town. There was no one who either understood or I didn't have access to partners. That's a very uh, common, common trend. So these aerobotic technologies in both space context and here on earth, they can be deployed to provide access to companionship and, and sex, but also in virtual environments and augmented environments help connect people with people who might share their preferences, orientations, and lifestyles, either um, at a distance, uh, whether that be uh, the moon or Mars or yeah. in a space, or if they are in a small town here on Earth, well, with from other people in the world on here on Earth. Yeah, and I guess a, a similar situation might be people who are incarcerated that don't have access to those social normal situations. They might be in a jail with only men. They might be in a jail with only women. Um, and I guess that might be a similar situation if you could study those kinds of types of situations as well. Yeah, I absolutely understand um, why we made this analogy. And I think the data from uh, prison context has some value. But I, 
there is definitely a context where we at least see that people in these situations try to express their sexuality and try to come to cope with the lack of partners and find alternative way of expressing. And I think that's where the analogy is pretty strong. On the other hand, I'm not a big fan of making that link, although the data are interesting, because um, of all the other realities of uh, being in prison, the, uh, in prison, the kind of people who are in it. I think it's it's pretty remote and pretty different from the general population, as well as definitely different also from the astronauts that we are sending into space and the kind of screening and training and psychological preparation that these individuals have and have been selected for. So um, although I really understand, and you're absolutely right, that I think the key component of prison experiment is that sexuality is not going to disappear in isolated environments. Rather, people will try to find ways to express it in a way that is sometimes problematic. (laughs) Often, uh, um, that we can take and expect that in isolated environments on Earth or in space, human sexuality won't disappear. It will rather be transformed, and people will try to adapt to space context and space habitats. Uh, But we we are really dealing here with very different populations. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Wow, that was an amazing, great segment. This is The Sexy Lifestyle. We are Carol and David, and we're just going to take a quick break. We've uh, been discussing all about space technology and aerobotics with with Simone Dubay. Uh, Coming up next is our favorite segment, Great Sex Matters, so stay right there. So are you interested in vaginal rejuvenation and sexual health? It's a topic that we want to talk about more, because how we look and how we feel make a huge difference in the way we live sexy. The company Lumisk has developed an easy treatment system for vaginal rejuvenation. It's a product that you can use on yourself and at home. It's a carboxy gel called CO2 Lift V. You simply mix together two packets of gel and apply it to your vulva and inside your vagina before bedtime and then rinse it out in the morning. The gel infuses CO2 into the skin to encourage blood flow It promotes healing and cell regeneration, and the great thing is that there's no discomfort or downtime. This CO2 Lift V treatment keeps your vaginal tissue healthy and happy. It increases lubrication and sensation and makes sex more fun at any age. After you finish the initial course of weekly treatments, you can easily maintain your results with applications once a month. Also, it's a sure way to snap back after a long night of great sex. For more information, visit CO2Lift.com, buy yours today, and get a 15% discount if you use promo code SEXYLIFE at checkout. That's S-E-X-Y-L-I-F-E. Great sex starts now. And remember, if you're looking for an online open-minded community to meet compatible people in your area, you should go to SDC.com and use promo code 30314 for your first month free. So check it out. All right, this is The Sexy Lifestyle. We are Carol and David, and now it's time for our favorite part of the show where we get to talk about sex, about great sex because... Well, great sex matters, and we all deserve it. Since this is David's favorite topic, you know, sex in space, and I think that's what we're going to be focused on in this segment, I would really like to hear what your fantasy is. I know you were going on and on about maybe trying to do it on the ceiling or being tied up, but that's not the kind of fantasy you've always had about having sex in space. Why don't you describe a little bit about the what you imagined since you were a young man having sex in space? Well, the fantasy is... Did it start with Star Trek? Like, wh- where did it come from? Absolutely. So okay. I'm a Trekkie, Star Wars, anything to do with sci-fi, I love it. 
And very rarely do they portray any of the actors or characters having sex in space. On Star Trek with, with Data on The Next Generation, they tried having him have some feelings and stuff, but they never really got into it because it was really a you know, PG-13 and so on and so forth. But you, 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 you ask yourselves questions about, first of all, they never go to the bathroom in space. So, you know, <laughs> well, they don't show it. <laughs> they don't show it exactly because it's not you know, part of the story. But you know, we know sexuality is primal. And um, you know, someone like me who's pretty horny, if I'm going to space, I, I want to be able to visualize how um, and, and where I'm going to be able to have sex either with you or with someone else who's um, consensual. Or maybe a robot. Maybe a robot, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and how are they going to know my needs? But, you know, you know, we swing because of the excitement. And, and the excitement of thinking about having sex in space is very cool. So, you know, on Earth here, um, my knees and my wrists get sore when we have sex, right? Because I'm there. You like being on the bottom. I'm on the top. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of energy that's used to thrust and to, you know, make you feel good. So you're is, imagining sex is different in space? Well, I'm, I'm thinking that I'm not going to use as much energy. Oh, so you think maybe I can do some of the work too. Simon, what do you think? Is it less <laughs> energy? I, I really have to enter here uh, and mention that this is the realm of pure speculation. Of course, uh, that's a fantasy. That's why it's a fantasy. Uh, and, and I think space context, depending on what we're talking about, uh, there's different space environments. There's uh, orbital station that have uh, almost zero uh, gravity or complete total weightlessness. Uh, we can think about the moon where if you have a permanent base, we're talking about uh, reduced gravity as well as on uh, as on Mars. So depending on that uh, that setting, I think if we put into place the proper uh, privacy environments, little rooms, little habitats, uh, and also give you the means with straps or garments to just navigate uh, th- this reduced weightlessness uh, or total weightlessness. Uh, I think in some ways, yeah, it might be easier and there will be less resistance and people, for instance, who might have injuries or back uh, back problems or are dealing with all kinds of uh, struggle when they are in 1G and <laughs> the gravity on yeah. Earth might actually find uh, very creative ways to uh, circumvent that in space context. You know, imagine, imagine having sex in a handstand. Well, you, you know, keep you could, imagining these things. You could never not, do that on Earth. That's not what I'm imagining. You're so funny. You know, th- th- just you know, you know, I, I love you know holding you and you know having vertical sex, but it's it's hard. You know, I'm I'm holding. Well, you are strong, pound body, and I have to hold you and thrust at the same time. It's a lot of work. I have to just fantasize that, and in space, it's so much easier. That's the only reason you want to have sex in space, so it's lighter and easier. Definitely less effort. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Wow. Why don't you use a strap on? Uh, Because it's way too much work. (laughs) (laughs) I get it. I get it. All right. Let's move on. Uh, Yeah. Let's move on. Okay. Simo, well, let's talk a little bit about sexual desire and libido and how that might be affected by long term isolation. Space travel. Yeah. yeah, Or space travel in general. Right. Really good question. I think, okay. Again, this will need to be confirmed uh, with further empirical data. Uh, But we do have good reasons to suspect that radiation, uh, reduced gravity, uh, which can lead to deconditioning, as well as long-term psychosocial stress of living in remote, confined, isolated environments that are also very dangerous, has the potential to 
impair people's desire and libido. That said, yeah. <laughs> that said, it's unlikely to completely suppress it. Uh, on the contrary, I think people will aim to fulfill their sexual needs and desires, and especially if we develop more uh, interesting space habitats, uh, space hotels for tourists, or long-term settlements on the moon and Mars, I think we will think about these environments with more space and more environment to explore people's sexuality and enable people's sexual desire um, and enable uh, the expression and fulfillment of their needs. So in those contexts, we would be dealing with vastly different impacts on their desires and libido. I think if we take into into consideration human needs and desire in the design architecture and protocols of these space habitats, I think we could uh, probably uh, anticipate that it would be somewhat similar on Earth. Uh, but again, all the other factors that I've mentioned have the potential to increase stress and stress is a mood killer. Right. Uh, so uh, yeah. so we need to be dealing with that. As well. do, do you think it'll be easier to get an erection and maintain an erection in space at zero gravity? Yeah, there's a couple of anecdotes about astronauts having uh, what I think they said, erection that would cut through diamond or something. <laughs> uh, Ooh, I like uh, that. So, so uh, it's definitely possible to have erection for both men and definitely uh, for women as well. Uh, whether it be easier or harder to maintain, like I said, these missions, these environments, they can be very stressful. So that might definitely affect uh, sexual arousal, sexual function and sexual responses. Um, but it's definitely possible. And since blood is uh, moving differently um, in your body in space, in zero gravity, uh, it can redistribute itself a bit differently than on Earth, which can also affect your sexual functions. So it, it's hard to say because we don't have yeah. data that would say, yeah. oh, here are all these uh, female and males in space. Here's the frequency of their... Uh, their sexual arousal or erection and sexual uh, responses on Earth versus during the mission versus after the mission. Right. Uh, this is the kind of data that we want to collect yeah. uh, to know how it impacts their uh, their sexuality. But uh, I think for now, all I can say is that it might be on both sides. Some people might respond very uh, intensely to space context and reduce gravity, and others, because of all the stressors, might... Uh, might it might make it harder for them to uh, respond in the same way that they would on Earth in terms of their sexual functions. So that's like more likely the physical aspect of being in space and how it affects the blood distribution and whether the erections are going to be hard or easy or whatever. But what about the mental idea, the you know the mental idea, psychological idea that they're not going to be able to have sex for their six month mission, for example, that. You think the guys, I mean, I know sometimes women talk about they just turn it off when they know they're not going to be able to have it and they, they don't worry about it. But I don't know very many guys who can actually turn off their sexuality. Uh, do you think that they have to do that while they're gone? Like they have to know that we're not going to be able to have sex, therefore I have to stop thinking about it. Yeah, I think for everyone, uh, really depending on their level of arousal, whether they be men, women, non-binary, gender non-conforming, whatnot, I think it is going to be an issue we have to deal for. Uh, everyone that goes into space. Uh, I think we, to some extent, we have to break this this myth uh, of the superhero astronauts that is beyond 
practical human uh, needs and, and desires, especially as we venture into space for longer and longer periods of time. It's not a big issue if they're spending maybe a week uh, or two in space, maybe a month. But when we're talking about more than two years uh, to go to Mars uh, and come back, I mean, some of these people will have partners, left partners on Earth. We need to be finding ways to allow them to express their sexuality either with themselves or with partners uh, during these missions and uh, or find ways to connect them with people outside of their crew if uh, if that's the issue or with with artificial partners and virtual environments it's, if that's a, it's a it's an option but what we can't do in my opinion is just pray yeah. <laughs> that uh, people will somehow work it out <laughs> uh, work it out deal with the uh, informal or formal policies of abstinence and celibacy i think eventually someone's going to crack and um and especially if you tell them don't do it yeah. <laughs> that's kind of like yeah. uh we, we have to rather i think be proactive and prepare astronauts for these reality and even though it's working environments when we go into space for that long period of time or to establish permanent settlements we're not just going into space to work right we're going into space to live mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. and living means dealing with intimate and sexual needs um and yeah, I, I think we have to stop putting our heads in the sand that even though astronauts, yes, they are probably tree standard deviation on all kinds of measure, very high IQ, very amazing personality uh, characteristics, highly selected from thousands and thousands of candidates prepared for their missions. They are incredible individuals. We, we have to recognize that. But as space become more accessible, it's not just astronauts who have needs that we should be dealing with. It's also tourists, civilians, engineers, scientists, healthcare. It's everyone that will go into space will have to deal how space affects their reproduction, but also how their and sexual needs, but how their intimacy and sexual needs affects the missions and their life in space. And we need to think about how to make that possible in a safe and ethical way. Now, I it's, actually, it's, it, sorry, I actually can imagine it, using virtual reality, VR, as one of the solutions, and I'm, I'm sure it's been thought about, because you can actually include in the VR, I guess, uh, I haven't actually done it myself, but you can include your partner if you've left a partner at home, and it might feel very natural to be in the VR situation to continue your relationship or your intimacy that you've already established on Earth. That might That's a, just something I can imagine might happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have also to realize, and I'm saying this for the audience, is these space environments, they're completely technological. Just the fact of living in space requires a tremendous amount of, of technology and so, to create these self-sustained environments. So why not just add also modules and possibilities for VR, augmented reality, and systems that will allow human sexuality and intimacy, whether that be alone, with a partner within the crew, or their partner or someone remote outside of the crew or on Earth. I mean, it's it's almost every solutions that we find to our life in space is realized through technology. So why not also our sexuality? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I can also kind of imagine that perhaps those highly qualified people that are being sent to space might actually be open-minded and, and maybe they have a need to you know, not just have one partner, like you don't want to have just one partner in space if you're limited number of people. Maybe you want to be open-minded and have many different partners while you're there. 
I absolutely hope that's the case. And if it's not, I, I think anyway, any programs that would send humans to live in space for long periods of time should have some form of training that has to do with sex education, with sex positiveness, with developing a sex etiquette and ethics of how to respect the needs of your crew members, of your colleagues, of your friends that you're living with, as well as respecting your own and recognizing that they are important and that while we need to adapt, because we need to adapt the way we live when we go into space, that's for sure. We, we can, unless we're able to recreate an exact environment of Earth, we'll have to make concession and adapt our sexuality to these new realities, but train and prepare astronauts and future space inhabitants for that rather than just waiting for problems to arise mm-hmm. or that it's done as a free-for-all. Um, I, I think it's, it's ludicrous. It's, it's very completely unreasonable. I'm, yeah. hope, I'm hoping that um, as space travel picks up, that people are going to go into space and as they start having sex, there's going to be more sex for pleasure versus sex for love. Because um, I, I believe that the pleasure aspect of the sexual experience on long-term missions is going to be more critical than someone falling in love and wanting to you know, get married. Mm-hmm. I think the marriage and the family isn't going to be as important as people remaining psychologically sane and being able to enjoy and be excited for the journey that they're going on for a year or two years and not, okay, I'm going to be partnered up with this one person, but what about the other six people who are with us? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Never know. Yeah, I I mean, I don't want to put sex over love or love over sex or <laughs> intimate relationships, but I do absolutely agree with you that pleasure is essential. I think uh, as people go into space, we should find, in my opinion, a way to simply enable all of it, all of it, and that if people want to concentrate on their pleasure and relationship and the sexual activities, so be it. They should should be have the right to they should be enabled to in a safe uh, consensual manner um and if if they if they find love on the trip which look i i have to bet that this is going to happen this is going to happen that some people very like-minded mm-hmm. with uh, healthy individuals with similar passions expertise uh, very smart people working on earth for long periods of time I mean, we have to bet that some people will develop intimate relationship or fall in love mm-hmm. or, as you said, simply want to have sex mm-hmm. uh, with one another without any uh, other strings attached. Mm-hmm. All of it is acceptable, great, and I think uh, we just need to figure out how to make this happen. Wow, yeah. And I know um, earlier we talked a little bit about reproduction on uh, in these space missions or on, on the moon or on Mars. But what is it, just briefly, uh, what is it that we know already that can happen in the reproductive side of things? Yeah, uh, good question. Reproduction is really uh, the aspects of, of space sexology that has received the most attention on the scientific side, including from NASA and its different uh, partners. Uh, since the 1960s, we've been running experiments on the effect of space condition, especially radiation and gravitational changes on the reproductive functions and early development of vertebrates like fishes, uh, birds, amphibians, reptiles, and small mammalians, uh, small mammals like, uh, like mice. Uh, what we know of these days... Uh, is that, look, 
the bottom line is that space is dangerous. <laughs> Radiation can affect the, the, ga- the DNA of cells and gametes. Gravitational change can really affect the development of all kinds of functions and structures in all of these, uh, in most of these uh, different kinds of non-human animals. Um, we know, though, that we are able to shield um, mice spermatozoa uh, from radiation for extended periods of time for the International Space Station. Uh, that's encouraging. We know that uh, reduced gravity can affect the develop- normal development. It doesn't necessarily prevent gestation and uh, one reproductive cycle, but it seems to affect the early development of uh, mice and small mammalians. When it comes to humans, though, uh, we really don't know a lot. We are starting to do research where we conserve human sperm and eggs aboard the International Space Station. There seems to be encouraging data to be able to conserve them, protect them, shield them from radiation. Uh, we're really far from doing full multi-generational cycles of reproduction. Uh, we also have a few studies that suggest that uh, female astronauts 13 female astronauts who gave birth post-space flight, we did not denote any increase in, in the number or diversity of, of problems. But 13, 13 individuals is, is not a lot. Yeah. Uh, we, we need much more than that to uh, really know what we're dealing with here. And uh, but we're doing reviews of what we can, but we need also to move with human experiments. Uh, lastly, we have, we have some data of bed rest studies uh, that seems to suggest that uh, microgravity can affect uh, sexual functions, can definitely affect testosterone levels uh, of males. Uh, we also have some reduced testosterone levels of males when they come back from space. So all of that kind of suggests that Things space is yeah. uh, imp- impacting our reproductive yeah. function and sexual functions. Um, but beyond that, again, I want to reiterate, reproduction is a very small mm-hmm. portion very small piece of the puzzle when we think about all the complexity of human intimacy and sexuality. Sex is not just about reproduction, and reproduction is not just about producing viable offspring. This is this is the mantra. Like we, yeah. we need to be taking it to account. Pleasure, diversity, power dynamics, uh, intimate relationships, culture difference, cultural differences, all of that if we want to find a way to live in space mm-hmm. and Absolutely. live our sexuality in a meaningful way. Oh my goodness, this has been an amazing show and we are coming to the end of our show and we usually like to finish off with one final piece of advice that we can leave with our audience. In your opinion, how many years do you think it will be that finally we'll hear about people actually having sex in space? And it's just your opinion, I get it, I understand. (laughs) But what Uh, do you think if you tallied everything up that you have to do between now and then? I really don't know. What I'll say is that if we commit the necessary resources and if a company decides to do it, uh, it could happen pretty fast. But Like pretty fast is two years or pretty fast is two months? <laughs> I am really not going to, uh, <laughs> okay. to give a All specific right. time. What I'll say is that giving the timeline of upcoming space missions to the moon and Mars, I really hope that researchers, space organization, whether they're private or national, start studying it all within the next 10 years. Good. Like we okay. have to deal with that within the next 10 years. Um, will that happen? I don't know. But I hope uh, they hear the call for research, the importance of this, and we figure out how to way to comprehensively enable human sexuality in space, including having sex, sex in space, 
within the next 10 years. Wow, very, awesome. very cool. Absolutely amazing. Uh, Simon, I'm glad that we finally got the chance to have you on our show. Uh, Simone Zubay, thank you so much for being here. All that amazing and, and mind-opening information. Why don't you take a minute to tell everyone how they can find your work, uh, website, um, and some of the papers that you guys are working on? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. I, if you want to follow our work, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. You can also look at uh, my page on the current scholar page of the Public Scholars Program at Concordia University or my page, personal page on the Concordia Vision Lab. Uh, we have a number of studies ongoing. One is about uh, sexuality and technology. Uh, it's still ongoing up until approximately May, so we're looking for as many participants as we get. If you want to participate and contribute to sex science, uh, absolutely uh, contact us at sextechstudy2 at gmail.com uh, or find our advertisement on our Twitter and social media. So thank you, uh, Carol and David, for the invitation. Uh, this is an amazing show, very sex positive, uh, very open-minded. Uh, I'm glad to have uh, contributed. Wow, terrific. And of course, if you missed any of the information on how to contact Simone Dubay, you just have to go to our website, thesexylifestyle.com, where every one of our guests has their own guest page with all of their information, and you can even contact them directly there. Absolutely. And like we did today, we're learning more and more every week with all our amazing guests. We hope you do too. If you have any questions at all, you can always send us an email at ask at carolandavid.com. Like Carol said, wow. What an amazing show, and um, unfortunately, it is the end. Simone Zubay, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Again, it was a pleasure. And like we do every week, we want to thank all our listeners for being here week in and week out. So join us again next time for another hour of The Sexy Lifestyle, talking about sex, sexuality, sexual health and pleasure, and all the fun ways to spice up your sex life and live happy, healthy, and always horny. Well, that's it for our show today. Carol and I send you lots of love and great sex. Please stay safe. And of course, stay sexy, everyone. Until next time. Thank you for joining Carol and David for this week's edition of The Sexy Lifestyle. We've got another one lined up next Friday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The weekend is just around the corner, so try something new. Spice it up. And you just might have the best sex ever. 